Hey, it's Eric G. Around the House is sponsored by Baldwin Hardware. For 75 years, Baldwin Hardware has been known for its first-class quality and craftsmanship in door and cabinetry hardware. As an alumnus of the Baldwin Hardware Design Council, I can say I have seen the details and quality from design to the finished product. If you're looking for a new style and old-world craftsmanship, I can tell you there is only one Baldwin Hardware. Check out what would look great in your home at baldwinhardware.com. It's Around the House. You know, the manufactured housing, you know, which you talked about relative to uh, single wides or, or double wides or triple wides, um, which, you know, sort of looking back at the you know, sort of early history of manufactured housing, uh, wasn't the greatest housing. Um, it was really seen as um, sort of eyesores, you know, within communities. Um, we're seeing, you know, uh, sort of a better approach um, to manufactured housing, um, you know, through um, the, the HUD code regulations. Um, but we're also seeing uh, the growth in uh, modular uh, construction, which is, you know, constructed in a factory, uh, but meets the requirements of the local code. Um, you know, in most cases, a variation of the international residential code. When it comes to remodeling and renovating your home, there is a lot to know, but we've got you covered. This is Around the House. Welcome to the Around the House show. This is where we have a great time talking innovation around your home every single week. Thanks for joining us. I've got a great guest today, Ryan Kolker, Vice President of Innovation at the International Codes Council. Welcome to Around the House. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. It is great to have you on here, man. And you just had a great conversation here at the World Modular Annual Convention and Trade Show. And this is an interesting topic because I look at things and we have this big, huge push now from tiny houses to shipping containers. It is a game changer in the world of construction and somebody's got to get their arms around it. And it sounds like you guys are working on that. Yeah, absolutely. There is a, a lot of opportunity in this space, but also a lot of questions. So uh, the more we can sort of help to address them, uh, the more opportunities we have to get affordable and great housing out there. You know, it's been such a challenge here. I live in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon, and they've been trying to come up with ways for, you know, we've got a massive problem here with affordable housing. And it's it's tough because, of course, we have to have places that are safe for people to live in. But we've also got to find up new innovative ways to make it work. And sometimes building codes, you know, um, I wouldn't say get in the way of it, but it makes it a little bit harder. But many times it's for the right reasons. Yeah, I think there's probably a combination of different things that uh, create some challenges. I think, you know, building codes can certainly be a, a piece of it, um, but also uh, significant challenges around zoning codes and location of housing, um, a little bit of nimbyism uh, and those sorts of things as well. So, um, yeah, many different pieces that sort of add to the challenging equation. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you're running into out there that you see with this that uh, were hot? you know, topics of discussion for you guys, because I know what you guys are trying to do and we're trying to be as inclusive as possible, but, uh, you know, there's challenges, especially when you get into shipping containers and things like that, where it's one thing to build with a new shipping container, and then you've got to make it be able to fit into a residential type situation. And I know even some people out there have been trying to reuse the old ones, which kind of have some of their old issues with as well. 
Yeah. So I, I think there's a few different things. I mean, first off is just uh, folks understanding and learning about the different options through um, what we call offsite construction. So, you know, anything that's sort of done, uh, you know, elsewhere than where it's going to finally end up. Um, but also, you know, looking at uh, this concept of closed construction. So, you know, when something arrives to the job site, um, you know, the, the local inspector or the community can't really sort of poke behind the walls and know what's going on. Uh, and that creates uh, maybe some mystery, maybe some, uh, you know, sort of lack of uh, understanding or maybe even some concern. And so being able to sort of navigate the various different uh, choices around offsite construction solutions uh, creates challenges. And so we're really working with folks to help navigate, you know, sort of what different options mean for regulatory approaches. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when you look at, um, you know, the modular home community out there, you know, they've been doing that for for decades and decades, you know, where you're putting in the single wide, double wide, triple wide. And, you know, some states deal with that very strangely, like up in Washington state, for instance, you have a title for a trailer, basically, that goes onto a lot unless you put it onto a foundation. And, it's fascinating how those different worlds works. And I think, to be honest, I think the future is going to be in a modular home construction because you can just build it safer, more efficiently and more cost effectively in a building that's, you know, creates a healthier home while you're doing it. So I get this, but uh, that's the problem is when you've got a, a building inspector, maybe that's looking at it going, well, there's drywall up, but I couldn't look at how the wire was stapled or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've got uh, particularly in the uh, residential space, uh, you know, a couple of things going on. We have, you know, the manufactured housing, you know, which you talked about, you know, relative to uh, single wides or, or double wides or triple wides, um, which, you know, sort of looking back at the, you know, sort of early history of manufactured housing uh, wasn't the greatest housing, um, you know, was really seen as um, sort of eyesores, you know, within communities. Um, we're seeing, you know, uh, sort of a better approach um, to manufactured housing, um, mm -hmm. you know, through um, the the HUD code regulations. Um, but we're also seeing uh, the growth in uh, modular uh, construction, which is, you know, constructed in a factory, uh, but meets the requirements of the local code. Um, you know, in most cases, a variation of the international residential code, uh, and so. You know, those types of houses, um, if you're not standing at the job site, you know, when the, the boxes are, uh, you know, sort of brought and assembled, uh, if you were just walking down the street, you wouldn't know that it was, you know, constructed uh, using modular. So um, I think there's some really great opportunities there. But I think, you know, when maybe neighborhood groups or planning commissions hear sort of modular, they go back in their mind to, yeah, it's the trailers from the 1970s. Um, <laughs> Yep. Which, you know, sort of creates a, a level of stigma. But in reality, you know, a lot of the sort of modular manufacturers, the, the quality, the um, sustainability, the energy efficiency um, of, of homes are, are even higher than, than what they would get on a site built project. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at homes building in my area right now, and, and we're in the springtime here, so we have days of rain. And I'm watching a million dollar house being built up the street that has plywood on the outside of it. And it's black because of the mold and mildew growing on the outside of that. And if that would have been a modular constructed house, that wouldn't exist. And, and, and in a week, the builder's going to be wrapping that with house wrap. It's all attached on the inside. I've watched dumpsters of material 
of cut ends of material get hauled off. I mean, there's a million reasons why it is so much better to build these things inside and more efficient because if they have a 13 foot run, they can get 13 foot lumber. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other uh, key issue is is workforce availability. Um, you know, we hear from, uh, you know, builders that they can't get, um, you know, the trades in. Uh, and if you're building in a factory, you don't have to deal with those weather issues. Um, you know, you don't need to, you know, climb up onto the roof. Um, you know, everything is, you know, a six foot ladder or less uh, in the factory. And so you can think about attracting, you know, new people into the construction workforce that, you know, wouldn't want to be outside in the rain, snow, uh, and those sorts of things. So uh, I think it really presents another opportunity in that space as well. I don't know of a roofer out there wouldn't whether wouldn't rather be inside of a seventy degree building on an August day, putting roofing materials up on a roof versus out in the middle of the summer someplace. <laughs> exactly. And you know that's the smart thing, but. I see where you guys are trying to go in modernizing building codes so that these things get addressed fairly, I guess would be probably the word for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about sort of the genesis of the the building codes themselves, I mean, they were written for a site built world. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're you know, sort of then constructing in a factory, the sort of traditional inspection process of, you know, an inspector could show up at a home site, you know, every day if they really wanted to and sort of understand what's going on uh, behind the walls. Um, but if, you know, now in a modular construction project, you know, a, a full module with, you know, the walls enclosed shows up at a job site, the local inspector, um, you know, doesn't really know sort of what's happening. And so, you know, then you got to shift the uh, sort of inspection process back into the factory. Uh, and so we've been working on uh, standards to help uh, support that process uh, and really allow for um, confidence of, you know, the local uh, code official that, you know, there was a robust process happening, you know, in the factory. And that's key. I mean, I've had my own struggles on my own projects in the same city with two different inspectors, right? Where one guy's quoting something, one guy's think he's quoting the other, and you get the, the the standoff between two different inspectors. It's got to be tough when you've got a third party out there. And I see why you guys are doing that. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the more we can provide consistency, uh, the better. And and particularly in the offsite construction space. I mean, if you're dealing mm -hmm. with a factory that may be providing uh, products for, you know, multiple different states, um, if there are multiple different sort of regulatory structures, um, that cuts into the efficiency that the offsite construction process provides. So the more we can make those consistent, the, the better off uh, and the more we can capture the benefits of offsite. Yeah. Is there, are there different um, challenges when, you know, I, it's one thing to have a modular home being built, but I know that in this this container home craze that's out there as well. That's a whole different thing because you're literally taking a steel box that was meant to be shipped worldwide with materials in it and trying to make a residential structure out of it. And it's, at times it seems like that can be the wild, wild west out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so um, that was actually one of the first areas where we recognized the need to support uh, some consistency and some guidance around uh, offsite construction. And so uh, we initially developed guideline five for the use of, uh, and this is a long one, the use of intermodal shipping containers as buildings and building components. Um, there we go. <laughs> you but, couldn't make that really any shorter to address it, though. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so, you know, 
we, we really wanted to provide some guidance to local code officials, to builders on, you know, how to effectively use uh, shipping containers uh, and, you know, assure that they're providing the, the level of safety uh, required. And so since that guideline, we've actually incorporated language into uh, the International Building Code specifically on uh, how to use shipping containers. Um, and then, you know, we've also done, um, we have a ICC evaluation service, which looks at new and innovative products uh, to determine, you know, whether they're compliant with the code and provide uh, basically a report that says so. Um, so they've divided, uh, developed some resources around shipping containers as well, again, to provide that level of confidence that, you know, the folks that are using those shipping containers, you know, know what they're doing, um, there are some standards that, uh, you know, they're, they're using to sort of determine the safety and efficiency and, and all of those things. Yeah, that's good. And I've had some discussions with shipping container people because at first I was like, Hey, I'm really concerned about using shipping containers. I don't want the lawn and garden chemicals in a shipping container to be used in the construction of my house. And now I'm hearing from a lot of the shipping container people, Oh, we're either using first use or or brand new ones, which yeah. that's an interesting concept of, okay, what was in that container before I build it into a residential structure? Yeah. And that's certainly one of the considerations as you look at the the use of shipping containers. Um, I think, you know, one of the sort of interesting things that you mentioned around sort of new shipping containers. I mean, I think initially the whole sort of idea around shipping containers was, you know, reusing uh, material that, um, you know, didn't have uh, a, a use anymore. Uh, or was just too expensive to ship back to China. Um, and so, um, you know, certainly a huge sustainability benefit there. But as we move to, to more uh, sort of first uh, use or new, new shipping containers, um, you know, maybe that piece of the puzzle goes away. Um, but it's yeah. certainly a cool aesthetic as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember probably a decade ago in Seattle when I was up there, there was a Starbucks that was made out of a shipping containers you know, setup up there that I thought was really cool, you know, that they actually went through and did that out of, you know, 40 foot containers, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool, innovative way of doing it to do, you know, a different style of building, especially in a commercial building. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about a, a sort of Starbucks um, or similar, you know, type of application, those are great opportunities for offsite construction as well. Um, you can just, you know, create sort of dozens of the same model and, and pick them up and um, just drop them where you need them. What are you seeing out there in the tiny home craze? Because that is its own little thing as well. And it's almost like RV living in a space that you really can't drag the RV around because it was never built that way. But I have seen some absolutely wonderfully planned out and built ones. And then I've seen some DIY disasters that, that I've said, yeah, I wouldn't even want to put that behind a one ton truck and drag it 50 feet. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, the tiny home space is definitely a, an interesting one. And, and as you mentioned, we've seen sort of all sorts of different strategies. Um, there's definitely sort of lots of confusion around sort of what requirements uh, apply when and where. Uh, and so we've been doing some work to uh, sort of support the differentiation between how a tiny house is actually going to be used. Um, so if people are going to live in uh, a tiny house as uh, you know permanent residence uh, year round, um, they should meet similar requirements to what's in the International Residential Code. So your tiny house should be as safe and efficient and resilient as um, you know a neighbor who may live in a single family or or a townhouse. Um, 
but you know, really recognizing that there are some differences, uh, you know, between tiny houses and your single family house. Um, for instance, the the stairs. For instance, um, you can't have this grand staircase, you know, in a tiny house. Uh, and so there actually is an appendix um, to the International Residential Code that that sort of applies exceptions for you know things like stairs, egress, um, some energy efficiency uh, requirements. And so that's a way to sort of get to that permanent occupancy uh, you know type of approach uh, in a tiny house. We've also seen um, you know sort of uh, for temporary uh, or seasonal use. Um, the use of, you know, park model or RV standards. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that's certainly fine if the building is actually being used for that purpose. Uh, we've seen a lot of sort of uh, use of, you know, the RV or park model standards for uh, permanent residences in communities. And I think that sort of uh, sends maybe the wrong message on the role of tiny houses as, you know, part of the broader affordable housing uh, opportunity. Yeah, I agree. Cause you know, and, I, and I'm happy that you guys addressed as a group, that staircase thing, because, you know, that's where I get into the wild West comment on that stuff, because loft stairs were nowhere in building code for, to go into a bedroom. Right. I mean, it just didn't exist. And to have to kind of put something in to where people are sleeping in a loft, that was always one of the biggest issues to start with before that was addressed. Yeah, and and so now um, there's there's opportunities for staggered staircase, ladders, you know, sort of various different approaches. Sort of recognizing that you know the space is small, um, and you know if folks are in a tiny house, they know they're in a tiny house. So you know there there are going to be differences there. It's so true. And then yeah, I, I do see where you're talking about using the park model standard stuff because a lot of these are meant to design to be moved to the site left there you wouldn't want to travel a thousand miles with one of these on a trailer even though they're built with four or six wheels on them they're not designed even with the weight capacity to really deal with that effectively yeah and for the most part um you know tiny houses don't move once they're set so um if they're going to sit there um be used for permanent occupancy they should meet those those same requirements yeah. Do you have any other challenges that you guys are still working on with that? I mean, it seems like it's an ever evolving space uh, as far as the tiny home and even getting into the container modular stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly um, continuing sort of the the education around, um, you know, sort of what, what different offsite construction strategies are, uh, what are the requirements uh, that go along with them. Um, just getting folks comfortable with, um, you know, the various different approaches, uh, again, sort of bringing back to it's going to comply with the same requirements as the building down the street, um, same building code requirements. It's just built in a different way. Uh, yeah. and so that's that's sort of the challenge that that we're working through right now. Makes sense. Makes sense. I'm going to bend your, I'm going to I'm going to wave my own flag here on a little pet peeve of mine that I'm seeing out there right now that I'm just going to it. I'm going to advocate to you for, I tell you what, I wish we had a drywall code out there that was better. And okay. here's my flag on this. This, I had an interview here with the, uh, with the fire safety council, the UL listing fire safety guys. And they were saying the problems they're having right now with the new light drywalls. So we have all the new light dry. I, I can walk into any home center with the new light drywalls. The problem is, is that now they're falling down at half the rate is the old drywall in a fire. 
So they're reducing their fire safety that they had. If they have a fire in a, when they do their fire testing, if they haven't doubled the screws up when they did it, the ceilings fall down at 50% of the rate that they did with the standard drywall. And we're not talking a, a, a like a, a garage where we have a fire rated roof, but just your typical half inch drywall. They're running into a lot of problems with that, which I wouldn't have expected. I thought light would be great, but sometimes light isn't great. Huh. Interesting. Um, I know you guys that. probably haven't seen that yet, but I'm hearing it from the firefighters right now. Yeah, no, haven't heard that. But um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the great things about um, the code development process is that, you know, anyone can propose changes, um, you know, to the codes. And so if folks are seeing those sorts of issues um, that need to be addressed, um, submit a code change proposal. And um, we may see that uh, in a future edition of the code to address, you know, just those sorts of issues. I'm hearing in the background right now, drywall manufacturers screaming at me, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I might just do that. I might just do that because it's one of those things that I'm, I'm hearing from those guys a lot that uh, that's an issue. So yeah, and you know, we do have uh, a couple uh, committees uh, through the code council that help support those sorts of uh, efforts. So uh, I think that one may be perfect for our uh, fire services membership council or our, uh, our uh, fire uh, code action committee where uh, you know folks from that community really get together and sort of talk about big issues. Yeah, I'll bring that one up. And the other one that those guys brought up were uh, the stamped metal trusses as well, that at about seven minutes in when fire hits those metal plates that they peel back. So I love talking to the firefighters. They tell me stuff that I've never heard of before. <laughs> so... <laughs> But, you know, and that's the thing, though, with with this stuff, it is such an amazing when you're looking at building construction and what you guys are trying to do out there to make better built, safer homes that people can live in, you know, and really when people have a house built or whether it's a modular or a tiny house or anything else, you guys are just trying to make sure that it's something that's going to be sustainable for them and it's going to be safe for them. And that's why. You know, how many builders and, and homeowners go, oh, those darn building codes, they're there for a reason. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think, you know, one of the the sort of key things, uh, you know, about the, the codes themselves is, um, you know, I think folks do sort of uh, have this in the back of their head that, you know, my my local community is, is protecting me from whatever hazard or, you know, those sorts of things. Um, but in, in reality, if you sort of look at the map of the U.S. and where codes are adopted, uh, only about uh, a third of communities have uh, hazard resilient codes in place. Um, and so, you know, two thirds of the country has older uh, codes uh, or even uh, no codes at all. So uh, FEMA recently did a study looking at sort of where construction is happening uh, versus sort of where codes are adopted and where we're seeing 30% of the construction activity in the U.S. occurring, uh, there are either no codes or codes that predate uh, 2000. So, um, so yeah, I think folks are, are, are sort of missing that disconnect, uh, but, you know, sort of thinking that their local governments, you know, have, have them safe. Yeah, and it's so true. I, I deal with, you know, our national audience here, and I'll have somebody that goes, hey, I just bought a brand new home, and my kitchen vent hood is recirculating and it's not meant I, I don't have to have as long as I have a window in the kitchen. There are so many old codes from like the eighties and nineties out there in certain neighborhoods and communities or States, depending on who's monitoring that, 
that are just well out of date. And it's unfortunately up to that local jurisdiction to make sure or state, depending on how they do it, to make sure that they update that stuff. And you're right. There's stuff out there that's 20 plus years old that they should have updated because the rest of the world has moved on, but they're hanging back. Yeah, absolutely. And when we start to talk about you know, sort of new technologies or even some of the challenges you know, that you brought up, the, the code development process can capture those you know, pretty quickly. Um, but if the locals, uh, state and local governments you know, aren't updating to those codes, um, then you know, those benefits are not provided you know, to those communities. Uh, I think one, one great example is carbon monoxide sensors, um, you know, which I think came into the code sort of initially in 2015. Um, but if a community is on, uh, you know, sort of a earlier edition of the code, um, you know, they may not even be required to install carbon monoxide sensors, uh, which, you know, I think uh, most folks would recognize as a, as a key benefit uh, to, to safety. No question. And I mean, and you get into so many other things with you think of how technology has come on building envelopes on the outside of the building now where, you know, oh, it was it was a house wrap and a in tar paper. And now we've got rain screens and we've got all these different things going on there to plumbing systems and electrical stuff now and 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 new ways of heating and cooling. It's I, I really hope that, you know, the audience out there really make sure that that they're paying attention to this stuff because a lot of these new codes can actually save them money and save some hassles and save some lives if they if they just adopt it and make sure that it's kept up to date. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also, you know, maybe opportunities for home builders as well. You know, even if your sort of local community hasn't uh, adopted the the latest code. Being able to say to your customers that, you know, I build to, you know, the latest best practices, um, even if the broader community doesn't, that's, you know, really a, a potential selling point. Um, you know, folks are certainly uh, interested in, you know, the safety of their family, low utility bills, you know, sort of all of those issues. So uh, I think that could be a key differentiator as well. Yeah, you know, I'm in Oregon here, so I'm very familiar with our building code. It was fascinating last year going down to Florida and working with a bunch of builders down there and then looking at what they require because of their, you know, weather-related, you know, hurricane codes and stuff like that. And a lot of that stuff made a lot of sense. And I also looked at it and went, man, why aren't they doing this in like tornado areas? You know, I mean, you've got wind. You know, why aren't you putting in some of this stuff when you're building a new house in the Midwest, for instance? Yeah, and, and tornadoes has actually been an interesting one. Um, you know, we haven't really had in the past uh, tornado-specific provisions in the code just because we didn't really understand sort of the dynamics of uh, tornadoes. And so there were sort of general wind-related provisions, uh, but not specific tornado provisions. And so I, what we'll actually see in the 2024 uh, edition of the codes is... Uh, specific language to help address uh, tornadoes, uh, which really came out of research from uh, the Joplin uh, tornadoes. Uh, and so again, it's a it's sort of another reason why up-to-date codes are you know really important because we're able to capture you know that new knowledge, that new research, uh, and bring that into um, you know American homes. You know, it's funny, and I, I love old homes, and so I, I need to preface that before I start. But I'm on I'm on a lot of different social media groups, you know, and there's some of the old home sites that I love to be on. But there'll be a tornado go through and you'll see this house that has been completely blown off the foundation and is in the middle of a three lane, four lane street. 
And they're like, look how good that thing held up. And I went, that thing wasn't tied off to the foundation. It's in the middle of the road. Right. So you still need to, to <laughs> take care of that and demolish it. So, um, you know, so it, it doesn't matter if it, oh, it didn't collect the, it slid off the foundation. There's so many things like that with the older homes that, that uh, even though that they, yes, they were built solid. Yes, they had great craftspeople, but our building code is, has stepped up, at least in my area, it was probably the 70s to early 80s where we decided, hey, it's probably good to bolt things down. <laughs> yes, that's always a good idea. So it's it's just fascinating how that stuff goes. But uh, yeah, I agree. If, if people could kind of rally around their local building departments or state stuff to to get that going, I think it would be healthier for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So what else are you seeing as far as education out there? I mean, you guys are really involved in education with codes out there. What is your guys' programs out there as far as education? Because I know you guys do a lot of that. Yeah. So, um, you know, certainly a few different audiences, uh, you know, for our education, um, you know, code officials, certainly a key one, uh, you know, keeping up to date on, uh, you know, the latest code requirements, um, but also, you know, opportunities for the design and construction community as well. Um, you know, we have a, a pretty good program to support uh, contractor education, uh, again, around, uh, you know, codes, standards, uh, criteria, uh, those sorts of things, um, and really helping to, to you know, provide education, you know, for the broader uh, industry. And so, uh, you know, we have uh, education courses, but we also have uh, certifications for particular areas, you know, of the code. Uh, so, you know, folks can can sort of show their knowledge um, and, and sort of, again, provide that differentiation, you know, within sort of the broader industry. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. I mean, it's, it's one of those things I think with, again, with builders out there, they, they are so focused on getting maybe a house built or a development built or a remodel done or whatever, that that better understanding I think is really key for them. And I think it'll actually help them through the process if they take some of those courses, because now when they're walking through the house before they even call an inspection, they understand why that's there. Yeah. And it actually could end up, you know, sort of cutting down on rework or, you know, sort of addressing any of those issues um, that inspector identifies. And ultimately, you know, sort of it brings up the entire industry um, to address, you know, some of those challenges that that may occur, you know, within communities um, where, you know, from house to house uh, within a development, you may see, you know, the same sort of problem, uh, you know, popping up. So common. I mean, it's uh, especially with some of the larger builders out there. It seems that if it's a, a problem on one house, it goes down the entire street. Exactly. Which is key. Do you guys do any work with, and I know that you guys are building codes, which is completely different than zoning. And I think that that zoning creates their own issues and their own challenges when you're dealing with, you know, offsite construction stuff as well. Are you guys just purely in the, the code Lane, or do you guys actually get over into working with some of these other people on zoning as well, or is that just a whole other ball game? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we do mostly focus on uh, the building code related issues, but you know, sort of often uh, in people's minds, there's really no difference between the building code and the zoning code. Um, you know, I think the the sort of opportunity is, you know, or, or the real way to think about it is, you know, a building code uh, provides details on how to build. Um, whereas, you know, a zoning code says, you know, where and what to build. Um, and so, you know, that where decision is made first, uh, often. And so, um, you know, the code sort of deals with whatever potential, 
um, sort of hazards are associated, you know, with that with that wear. Um, and so, you know, we do get into you know some of those conversations. I think particularly on the offsite construction side, uh, you know, as I mentioned previously, you know, folks are are sort of uh, carving out uh, maybe uh, you know disallowing um, sort of offsite construction generally, uh, you know, within communities uh, because of sort of previous stigma uh, with you know particular uh, offsite products, um, and so maybe dealing with you know sort of a little bit of that. Um, you know, we also see, uh, some communities that, that sort of, uh, take advantage of the building code to bring in, uh, maybe some, uh, you know, sort of more expensive or, um, things that could potentially exclude folks, you know, from the market. So, um, you know, things like sort of requirement of, you know, brick on the front of, you know, all houses within a community or, you know, something like that. Um, or, you know, they all need to have a garage or, you know, something like that. Yep. Um, so there is, you know, a little bit of that crossover. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, there's certainly a lot more work to be done on sort of helping address that, that differentiation. Um, I think the other thing that we've seen, uh, which also helps provide maybe some, <laughs> some crossover, uh, is the expansion of ADUs or accessory dwelling units. Right. Um, so that's a huge yeah. thing for people trying to keep the mother-in-law out of the retirement <laughs> home or whatever, right? Out of the retire home, but not in your home, right? Uh, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's a, another huge opportunity for offsite construction, but also sort of, you know, mired a little bit in, in zoning conversations as well. Yeah, that's a tough one. And, and some communities do a great job of, of, of grabbing it because they're trying to get a little more density out of places where they can go, okay, there's room in the lot to do that. And there's other cities that are not in my backyard. You know, yeah. I don't want to see that. What do you guys do? You know, I've, so I've seen a trend here, at least on the West coast where I'm located, the cities are now trying to build up these, um, you know, kind of homeless or houseless villages where it's like the, the mini, mini, modular home where it's basically a room with a heat source and an egress window and there's a trailer of bathrooms. Is that something that you guys get involved or is that still considered more of a mobile type situation? Yeah, those are, those are generally sort of seen as, as temporary. Um, you know, they're, they're from what I've seen, they're usually sort of excluded from the building code requirements of the broader community. Um, so, you know, I would certainly recommend that that folks really understand sort of the, the safety challenges associated with those. Um, but, you know, recognizing that, you know, homelessness is certainly, uh, you know, a huge challenge. And so being able to sort of deal with um, sort of the social issues around homelessness while also, you know, providing um, shelter uh, and safety, I think, is, is definitely a struggle for communities. But, um, you know, they should certainly understand sort of what what they're getting and what the potential sort of pitfalls are. Yeah, I, I saw those. I mean, it's a great, I, the ones I've seen here that I've seen on our local news is they've got like a, a almost an RV panelized, you know, construction, almost like what you'd see a, a cargo trailer made out of with some kind of foam in it and then a little wall heater and, and uh, you know, metal steps to go up to it with, uh, with of course, offsite bathrooms. But uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's better, it's better than safer than a tent. But at the same point, yeah, I, I see where you're going where that would be more of a temporary and a mobile situation. Yeah. So what, do you, what else are you seeing out there? Um, 
are new products bringing new challenges to you guys? I mean, it seems like there's a new building product coming out the door every single day. Is that something that you guys are dealing with a lot uh, in the international code like that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, while the codes are updated, you know, every three years, as you mentioned, you know, we're continuing to see sort of new technologies, new solutions um, that maybe aren't, you know, specifically named in the code or, um, you know, sort of don't provide maybe a direct line from something that already exists um, in the code. And so uh, we've, we've actually developed an approach to be able to sort of get those things to market quicker while also uh, assuring that they meet the, the overall requirements uh, within the code. And so um, our ICC evaluation service um, can work with manufacturers to identify, you know, what are the specific tests required? Um, you know, how do I demonstrate that my product, uh, you know, meets the requirements in the code? And so then uh, the evaluation service will uh, sort of take a look at those tests um, and, you know, determine, you know, whether that product meets the code uh, and then provide a uh, evaluation service report. Uh, and so that report really allows the manufacturer to go to designers, go to local jurisdictions and say, you know, I've had my product tested, verified, uh, you know, it meets the requirements of the code. And that really smooths the process to market. I mean, otherwise, you know, a manufacturer would have to go to, you know, sort of each architectural firm or, uh, you know, each local jurisdiction and say, you know, walk them through the process of, you know, what this material does, you know, it's been through the testing, uh, you know, it won't catch on fire, you know, sort of all of those different things. Um, and so, you know, that that's really intended to help smooth, smooth that process. And then, you know, sort of as that product becomes more and more familiar to folks, um, you know, we may see it in future editions of the code. And that's great. As a designer, I've had that struggle with uh, clients in the past where in today's online community, they go, I found these great toilets that I found over in Europe and this whole plumbing line and they have it shipped over. And the inspector goes, it doesn't have any of the single stamps that I need to see on this stuff. Where'd it come from? Right, exactly. And it's it's not your fault. It's it's a European code stuff. And the local inspector's never seen this stuff because he's never stayed in a a portion of Europe that had this stuff. And of course, none of the stamps are on the thing to meet code. So I think it's, uh, as we get to be even more of a global awareness of products out there, it's got to keep throwing challenges at you guys left and right. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually have uh, relationships through our evaluation service, you know, with um, similar, you know, types of organizations or requirements in, um, you know, Australia, for instance, um, uh, Canada, Mexico, um, and nice. so really recognizing that that sort of globalization. That is great. That is great. Ryan, is there anything we haven't touched on today? <laughs> I, I think we've we've touched on a lot. Um, uh, so you know, I think certainly uh, talking offsite is is always fun. Um, but you know, I do get to work on some other really cool issues like energy efficiency and resilience. So um, always happy to talk about those things as well. But I think we've we've covered the landscape on offsite. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get you back on again and soon and we'll do uh, we'll talk energy efficiency and resilience because those are two huge subjects out there that, uh, as we all know, are continuing evolving. Yeah, no, absolutely. So where's the best place to track this information down? If there's a builder out there or somebody that wants to get some more education, where can they find you? Yeah, so we've got uh, actually an offsite construction page. If you just go to iccsafe.org slash offsite. Uh, we've got resources there, links to some of the education courses, 
um, general information about uh, the support that that ICC provides. Uh, and if folks want to reach out to me, it's just rkolker at iccsafe.org. All right, Ryan Kolker, VP of Innovation, International Code Council. Thanks for coming on today, man. Yeah, no, absolutely. Appreciate it. All right, you've been listening to Around the House. Somewhere unseen and undiscovered Anywhere beyond the mean Life is a love song, let's be lovers We're all over the radio Take my hand, I know where to go All over the radio Hey, it's Eric G. from Around the House. Are you planning a decking or siding project this year? If you are, you've got to check out my friends at Millboard. Millboard is a completely different kind of composite decking and cladding that enhances outdoor spaces with enduring distinction. Hand-molded from the finest oak, it realistically mimics the natural grain and color of premium hardwood. If you're looking for something that doesn't look like plastic and instead real wood, check out millboard.com. Make sure and check out that interview we did just a few weeks back. That's millboard.com.